Hello, and welcome to The Verge Podcast, a part of the college and career ministry at First Baptist Dallas. I'm Kyle Wilson, and it's a pleasure to be a part of your day. I want to personally invite you to join us at our college and career ministry any Sunday at 9.15 a.m. or Wednesday night at 7 p.m. For more information, check out firstdallas.org college. This podcast is a recording of our weekly Sunday teachings, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, let's do it. All right, well, welcome to week three. We're uh, continuing through the book of James, and it's been such a pleasure to go through this with you guys. Uh, The book of James is really one of my favorite books because it's so incredibly practical and allows us to really gain wisdom and learn what it means to live the life that Christ would have us live, to live like Him. So, Again, before we start, let's do just a little bit of background for those of you who may be jumping in with us for the first time. Uh, The book of James, it was written by the half-brother of Jesus, and so he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which is the first Christian community that we see in the New Testament. Peter, who had originally started this community, he went out, he started new churches, and James stepped into the void and began to lead. And he had a 20 year stint as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And during that time, he guided the church through famine, through poverty, and through persecution. And this book is an entire legacy of his wisdom. Now, a couple things. While this book is technically a letter or an epistle, it's not like Paul's letters to the different churches, like the uh, letter to the book of Corinth or to Ephesus. And in those books, what Paul is usually doing in those letters is addressing specific problems within those communities. But uh, the book of James, we see in chapter 1, verse 1, that it is written to the 12 tribes in dispersion, which means all of these believers that are a part of the community at the church in Jerusalem, but now they've been scattered out from Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen. And so this is a general letter to Christians all over. And it's why this book is so powerful. Is because it's challenging and it's encouraging to any and every community of faith, both in the past and in the present, which is why we're going through it. Uh, Another note is that this book does not teach new theology, but rather it seeks to challenge how the Christian reading it lives. You see, James was heavily influenced in his writings from really two different sources, one being the book of Proverbs that we see that he enjoys wisdom literature, but also from his half-brother Jesus, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, which is an incredibly applicable part of scripture. And so the main goal of the book of James is that the followers of Christ would become truly wise by living out Jesus's summary of the scriptures, which is this, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so that is what we are going to be diving into today, starting back uh, into the very beginning of chapter two. We've done all of chapter one so far, and so we're just going to go ahead and jump into chapter two. It's kind of split up into two different sections, uh, first talking about favoritism and then moving into a discourse on faith and works. And while there's a lot of stuff in chapter two, because we're going to cover the entirety of chapter two today. While there's a lot in chapter 2 that could be two totally different sermons, uh, there's a lot that's kind of being similar here. There's a common thread of thought within this passage, and so if we split it up, you'd kind of get two very similar messages back to back. So I thought we'd just kind of cover it all together in one today. So let's go ahead and jump right in to uh, the first part on favoritism 
James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For example, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, and then yet you say to the poor man, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonored that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you at your baptism? Indeed, if you are, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point, he is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, and he who said, do not murder. So, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom, for judgment, is with, for judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. This beginning part here in James chapter 2, again, is all about favoritism, and it kind of corresponds back to James chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, that we read a couple weeks ago, talking about how there was a difference in treatment towards people who were wealthy. Uh, favoritism here that we're talking about throughout this passage implies, it's talking about partiality. It implies an inclination to favor a person or thing because of a strong fondness or attachment. Treating people with partiality may spring from predilection or prejudice or from bias. So let's take a second real quick and kind of uh, work that down. Predilection implies a preconceived liking formed as a result of one's background, temperament, or whatever, and it inclines one to a particular preference. So, in an idea is, I really like this thing because my background is in that. So, therefore, in the future, I'm going to show favoritism toward the thing that I have a background in. That's one way to look at it. Prejudice is the exact opposite. It implies a preconceived or unreasonable judgment or opinion, usually an unfavorable one, that's marked by suspicion, fear, intolerance, or hatred. So, again, the exact opposite of predilection, which is... I, in my past, in my background, I have found that X, Y, and Z is not good for me. Therefore, any time I come into a situation that has that, I'm not ever going to react in a positive way. Lastly, the other way that favoritism comes about is through bias, which is just the mental leaning in favor uh, or against someone or something without passing judgment on the correctness or incorrectness of that preference. Bias is just the mental, I'm not even going to engage here. I'm going to just continue to look through my own worldview based on my predilection, based on my prejudice, and I'm just going to go ahead and overlay that bias in everywhere that I go. So James here, when he's talking to the 12 tribes in dispersion, talking to us here in 2019, 
he's talking about partiality, this favoritism that was happening within his church. And he gives a case study. He talks about a man walking in, he is dressed well, and, and when he walks in, he is given a good place to sit, a better place than what we see the man who is poor. He is given a spot on the floor or in the back, a not place of preference. It's this case study of giving preference of a seating arrangement due to how one is dressed. And of course, that's going to reflect their social status. Um, so it would be like me moving someone up to the front of our meetings because I like them more. It feels great to the person receiving that treatment, but this is what it does. It fuels their pride. And then it feels awful to the person that I've just neglected, and it fuels their resentment. And so as I show favoritism, which is the heart of what James is trying to get out here, is when I show favoritism, I am starting to break apart the community of Christ that we have here together in the church. Because to one person, I'm boosting up their pride in a sinful way that fuels sinful thoughts within their own mind to think that they are better than other people. At the same time, while I'm fueling the pride of the person that I'm moving forward by showing favoritism to, the person that I'm now neglecting feels resentment, feels bitterness, and decides I don't want to be a part of this if this is the way I'm going to be treated. And so in one action of favoritism, what, we were, what we're doing is we are breaking the bonds of community by this type of favoritism. It's fueling pride, and it's fueling bitterness and resentment. Of course, we don't do this here in the 21st century? No, there's no way that we say, hey, you can't sit here because you're dressed a certain way. We don't, we don't do that, no. And we don't do other things like it, surely, right? We don't just talk to certain people because there are some people who are just annoying and they're always negative and they always make it about themselves. And so why should I talk to them when I have people that I like and I can talk to them all the time? We don't do that. Oh, we don't invite people to group hangouts in front of other people who aren't invited. Well, we never say that they're not invited. We just don't invite them explicitly. Surely this person would know that they're invited. I don't have to explicitly say it. So we can make plans in front of people and not feel bad about it. No, we never do that. Uh, we don't see people as objects to fill, our to fill the void of our loneliness until a better alternative comes along. And then we can just ghost on them. No, we never do that. But, but we do. Favoritism is still alive and well within the 21st century church. It just looks a little bit different. For James, this is incredibly personal. Hadn't the people in his congregation, in his church, hadn't they time and time again been taken advantage of by the rich? Why would they receive better treatment uh, if they're going to cozy up to the rich and try to buddy-buddy up to them. Well, they're doing it, of course, for a hope of a better temporal situation. And this goes back to where our hope is supposed to lie. It's in Jesus. It's not on things on earth. It is in Jesus where our hope should reside. This lines up with James' half-brother Jesus' teaching. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 46-48, through 48, the Sermon on the Mount, it says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect. There's that word again that James loves, perfect. You must, therefore, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is being conveyed here is we need to widen 
our surroundings and love people regardless of their situation, regardless of their background, regardless of how they act towards us. No, we do love all and serve all. When we do this, we become perfect, which is what we talked about the first week in James chapter 1, which means we are becoming more fully integrated into the person of Christ. As we love people, as we serve them without any type of favoritism or bias, we look more like Christ. Well, you know, sure, we're supposed to do this, um, but it's okay to show favoritism now and again, right? I mean, I get it's not the coolest thing in the world, but it's no big deal, right? No, James is incredibly explicit here. He says that this is sin. He says that if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. It's a violation of part of Jesus' Jesus's greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's sin. There's no way around it. Verse 10, as we kind of move on through this, it says, Whoever keeps the law... Uh, but fails in one point, is guilty of breaking it all. Uh, a lot of times this can kind of be taken out of context. And let me just kind of rein it in here for us real quick. The main message that this verse is trying to get across again is that people think murderers and adulterers are the lawbreakers. They're the ones that disobey Jesus. They're the awful ones, of course. But me showing favoritism, that's not a big deal. Sure, it's not great. It's not cool. But it, it, surely it's not a sin. No. James here is explicit. Favoritism is right up there too. Little sins are still sins. It still shows the inconsistent, fractured being that we are. This is why if we are guilty in breaking one part of the law, we're just lawbreakers. This is who we are. But in Jesus, of course, there's the alternative to become perfect, fully integrated, and living like him. And so what we must do is show mercy, which means speaking and acting like Jesus, to everyone in every situation. This is the first part that James chapter 2 tries to rest on, is talking about favoritism. You and I cannot show preference and bias towards other people in our lives. We, like Jesus, should love and serve everyone. Now, the second part that we move into here in uh, chapter 2 talks about faith and works, which is a famous passage throughout Scripture. Let's just go ahead and jump into it. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If our brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat well, but you don't give them what they need, what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, if it doesn't have works, if faith doesn't have works, it's dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. The demons also believe. And they shudder. Foolish Man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled where it says, Abraham believed in God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works, not by faith alone. 
And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You see, just evening out your partiality towards other people, your bias, your favoritism towards other people isn't enough. We have to act on it. We can't just think in our minds, okay, I'm going to think better of these people. We actually have to live it out. If the poor person comes in to our church, not only do we give them a place in the congregation, but when we see their needs, we meet their needs tangibly, physically where we are. If someone says that they have faith in God, but neglects someone who is needy or poor, this person's faith is dead. Their actions betray what they say that they believe. And genuine faith will always result in obedience to Jesus' teaching. Let me say that again. Genuine faith always, always, always results in obedience to Jesus' teaching. Again, this would be in line with another part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will look at them plainly and declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you doers of iniquity. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears my words and does not do them, well, he will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Just because we say that we follow Jesus, just because we say that we do great works, just because we do what we're supposed to do, does not mean that we're being obedient because God is always concerned with the attitude of the heart. There are so many philanthropists all around the world, but if it's not giving glory to Christ, then really they're just fueling themselves. To do other than obedience for the sake of giving God the glory? It's foolishness. So what is foolishness? It's hearing Jesus' words, interpreting them for yourself to fit your situation, and then make you feel good. Here's the truth. You are a terrible God. You will constantly create shifting foundation for yourself, and it will never be secure. We hear Jesus' words. We act on them. We live them. We respond with obedience. And that will make us wise. It will make us, as James calls us, perfect. We live out the truth of our faith by working within it for good. So we have to constantly be the people who will step up, see the injustice in the world, and say something about it. At the time that we're talking about this passage, the Houston Chronicle has just released a... Um, story about the Southern Baptist Convention and all of these sexual predators and abuses that have happened within the Southern Baptist Convention. This should not happen. It should not happen within our churches where things like this occur. You and I need to be the voice to stand up for the oppressed, for those who are voiceless, 
for those who are afraid and say, this is not the way of Jesus. Because if we just sit back and say, this is awful, and we make a Facebook post about it, retweet somebody who said a good thing, make an Instagram post that shows a uh, stance that we're going to take, and then we close our phone and say, well, I've done my duty for the year. Faith without work is, is dead. We need to walk in obedience, speak up and act in every situation that we are in. We need to honor Christ in that way. Moving on, uh, a lot of times people will look at verse 24 here in the passage, and they think there's an inconsistency within Scripture. Verse 24 says this, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. A lot of people see this as a direct contrast to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, which is, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not by your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no man could boast. Uh, I love what one commentator kind of says in this. It says, uh, Paul and James are best understood as addressing quite dissimilar situations. Paul's audience is in danger of relying on works for salvation. That's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2, is that people were having an issue with works for salvation. So when Paul addresses, you've been uh, saved by grace through faith and not by works, he's addressing that audience. Whereas James's readers are excusing themselves from good works, thereby showing that faith without any works is dead. And so what James, again, is trying to tackle here is the exact opposite of what Paul is, is these Christians have become comfortable and think, I don't actually need to do anything, I'll be fine. James needs to prod them along by saying, hey, you really do need to stand up and work. Works do declare us righteous in the sense that our works testify to onlookers that we are exercising a saving faith. They are external fruit that bears witness to the eternal life within. James has previously said that not every believer will bear visible fruit. Such a believer's faith is not productive. It is dead. So that's kind of where that passage is going. But again, the main point here that needs to be addressed within the second half of the passage here in James chapter 2 is that we have to act on our faith. We can't just say that we believe something, look at injustice and say, oh, wouldn't it be great if something could be done about that? It can be, and you can do that. Really, when all is said and done, more is often said than done, but it shouldn't be that way, especially within the church. And so what do we do? What do we do in light of James chapter 2? Well, we need to take responsibility. A part of the prejudice and injustice that we see in the world is from dead faith Christians. You can be the difference. When you show preference, when you show favoritism towards other people, what you're communicating is that Jesus has a type. That, oh, I am, as a part of the church, one of the metaphors in the scriptures is the body of Christ. So you, as a part of the church, are representing the literal body of Christ here on earth. When you show preference or favoritism to somebody out there in the world, what you're communicating as the body of Christ is, Jesus is not impressed with you. You are not his type. You are not worth his time. That is a lie from the pit of hell that we cannot believe and act out. When we show preference, we're communicating that Jesus has a type. 
When we show in action, when we decide that we believe something but we're not going to act on it within our faith, we are communicating that Jesus doesn't actually care. But he does. So when we show love, when we serve people, we're communicating Jesus as he truly is. This is the message of James chapter 2. It is a sobering reality for all of us to come to terms with. We can't just show favoritism to whoever we want. We can't just act however we want. I mean, look at your life in the areas where you have done that. Many times it leads to heartache, it leads to restlessness, anxiety, depression, hardship. It doesn't lead in a good way, again, because you are a terrible God and you build your own life upon a shaky foundation. But when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, when we act in accordance to who he is and what he did, we become a more completed person and we get to see the world around us image him as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've been able to uh, dig into the word especially uh, this book of James that is so incredibly applicable uh, to our day and age today. Our prayer, Jesus, would be that we would look more like you, that our actions would be consistent with our beliefs, the way we treat people is consistent with the way that you treated people. We'd ask that your Holy Spirit would reside in us and push us past past our comfort zone, that we would be able to experience life and ministry in a way that awakens and brings to life our faith. We thank you, God, and it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.